Hey everyone, this is Chad. I appreciate you taking time to listen to my sermon. It will start in a moment. But first I want to let you know about something you might find beneficial. For every sermon series, we produce a booklet full of thought-provoking questions, extra Bible passages, family activities, and discussion starters, and personal challenges. We give these out to the people in our church, but now we want to make them available to you. To get it, just visit the series page on our site and click on the series booklet button. For this series, the page is creeksidebiblechurch.org slash quietwrath. I really do hope you'll take advantage of this. They're a great resource. And just one more thing. If this sermon is impactful, would you do me a favor and email us at respond at creekside.me? That would be awesome. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that you will learn and live more fully for Jesus. So last week's sermon got a ton of pushback, and uh, maybe more than any sermon I've ever done. And so if you want to know about that sermon, you can go to creeksidebiblechurch.org slash quietwrath and listen to it if you weren't here and you're wondering what bothered so many people. But in this series, um, we're talking about anger, whether it be expressed anger or unexpressed anger. And I joked after I left last week and throughout the week, if you want to make a bunch of people angry, than tell them they shouldn't be angry. Uh, And that was seemingly the idea. A lot of people bothered uh, by what I said, not because they don't want to be angry, that was just a joke, but because they didn't agree with me or they thought I was off. And I would like to say, as as almost always in this church, and I hope we always have this culture moving forward, uh, but the, the pushback was done in a positive good way. It was great conversation, which uh, as the pastor of this church makes it easy to receive that feedback and go, okay, wait a minute, was I actually wrong? And so uh, these questions, you know, ranging from other verses in the Bible to the life of Jesus to forms of Greek words, they forced me to go back and and, uh, dive deeply into this subject. And me and and Matt Connery over there, who's preaching next month, by the way, on the topic of God's wrath, because that might be a question that you have. Like, well, if we're not supposed to be angry, why is it that God can be angry? And why does he seem so angry in the Old Testament so often? And he'll deal with that. But we went down a rabbit hole. I mean, like a deep, deep rabbit hole that I'm not sure we are at the bottom of yet, um, but but we learned a lot. We are, I, I think we would agree that we're like officially experts uh, on the topic of anger in the Bible. It's a pretty narrow field, um, but we are officially experts on the topic of anger in the Bible. And we still don't agree uh, fully, but we came closer together than we were about a week ago. And I want to, I just want to put up an image for you. I know you don't really care, but here is, this is the amount of books that I read this week um, on last week's verse, because I'm like, was I wrong? Did I preach the wrong thing? I mean, it was like 23 different commentaries on last week's verse, which if this week's sermon is bad, it's because I was studying for last week's sermon after it was over. But I really got interested in this topic and finding a solution. And so uh, 
just kind of briefly to begin today, I, I want to answer some of the pushback. Because last week, what I claimed is that all anger is bad and we should remove all anger. And I stand by those words, but let me, let me just give you uh, just a couple of responses to some of that pushback. Like one question was about the, the Greek form of one of the words. I know none of you care about this except for the one person who asked the question. Uh, but me and Matt, who was the person who asked that question, uh, we have come to the conclusion that the Greek form does not play a role because the Bible uses that same Greek form both for what appears to be voluntary anger and involuntary anger and that was kind of the hang up there like is involuntary anger bad or is just voluntary anger like I'm mad when the Blazers play half the time but it's not something I'm thinking about being mad about and does that matter and, and the answer to that question is that uh, orge which is the Greek word that all of this hinges on and I know most of you are looking at me like why are you talking about this but it, it seems to express the idea of okay anger or not okay anger if you believe in those things. Another question is righteous anger. And I actually did a Facebook live video that you can see on our Facebook page about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, And it's a big topic, but uh, the simple answer is that there is no commentary for us in the Bible that says righteous anger is a good thing or that anger ever produces righteousness. In fact, James 1, 19 and 20 says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because... I want you to all pay attention to this, everybody especially that pushed back, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Seems pretty straightforward. Our anger is not going to produce the righteousness that we think it sometimes uh, produces. But then you go, this is the next question. Well, if you know the Bible and you kind of know the life of Jesus, you go, well, wait a minute. Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. and, And that was just an act of anger. And he was doing it, I'm sure, to produce righteousness. And I would encourage that you go read those stories again. Because much to even my surprise... It doesn't say Jesus was angry. We superimpose anger into that story because, you want to know why? Because it's something we would do if we were angry, not because it was something Jesus did out of anger. In fact, if you look at the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, there's a triumphant entry. He comes in, people are chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The next emotion that you see, the next moment of emotion that you see is Jesus looking out over Jerusalem and weeping for the city. He's sad. And then he overturns the tables of the money changers. That's the order that the story has for us. But then you ask, well, Jesus was angry, right? And to this I say, yes, it appears that he was angry. Um, There is one instance in the New Testament, one solid instance of Jesus anger. It's a story that we don't talk about a lot. It's in Mark 3, 5. He looked around at them in anger. And it is difficult as I stand before you to know what to do with that because the Bible, let me just be open and honest here, the Bible seems still to me to say that for you and I, anger is always bad. But I cannot say now that anger is always sinful because I don't believe that Jesus ever sinned. The Bible makes clear that Jesus never sinned and Jesus was angry. And so here's what I'm certain of. This is where the rabbit trail has led me. Jesus was sinless. 
I already knew that part. Anger doesn't seem to be a characteristic that we should emulate in him. I would uh, illustrate that with seeking worship. Jesus seeks worship, but that doesn't mean that we should seek worship. And then number three, anger is still always bad, even if it isn't always sinful. And then I'm tempted to say that we shouldn't emulate Jesus in this because Jesus was fully man and fully God, but this leads to a bunch of other theological issues. And so now I've caught you up on kind of the argument that I went down this week, and maybe that was too much information, but I think you're all pretty smart people. And if you left going, well, Chad said anger is bad, and if you didn't have any pushback last week, you would have eventually come to some pushback as you were reading the Bible, and you're like, well, Jesus turned over tables, and was he right in that? And what do I do with this and that? Uh, And the last piece of pushback comes from the passage that I want to look at today. And I just said in response to people that were asking about it, well, I'm preaching on it next week, so uh, let's not talk about that yet. But Ephesians 4, starting in 26 and then going through 31, is another place where where we see kind of this idea that that maybe it's okay to be be angry. Uh, In your anger, it says, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, Paul here quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 4.4, and it is fascinating, if nothing else, that in Psalm 4.4, the word, the Hebrew word that's actually used there is not a word that, that primarily means anger. It actually means tremble. In Psalm 4.4, you'd read it like this in the NIV version, tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Now, while a case could be made that Paul is using anger in a different way this year, I don't think it's a very good case. And so I still think that what we read in Ephesians 4, 26 is something akin to, in your anger, do not sin. Now, a lot of people read this, and this isn't... This is an okay reading. I just think it's wrong, but it's not like you're, you're you know, a bad person or anything wrong. I just think it's the wrong reading to see this as it is okay to be angry, just don't sin. It seems like when we look at scripture that are difficult, scriptures that are difficult, it's true, it doesn't seem like, we have to make a decision about what scriptures mean that are difficult based on other scriptures that we have for us in the Bible. Hopefully you know that. It's just a hermeneutical practice, how you study the Bible practice. When you see a verse, you should always think about that verse in light of other verses that are in the Bible, especially when it's a difficult section of scripture. A lot of bad theology, a lot of hurtful theology A lot of even deadly theology has been done because people look at one verse and say, look, it seems like it says this, and they don't actually look at the other verses in the Bible. And in this scripture, it says in your anger, do not sin, but the overarching idea that I see in the New Testament, and I'm now an expert on the topic of anger in the New Testament, the overarching idea is that anger is always bad, if not always sinful. This is seen in the Old Testament and the interpretation of the Old Testament by people who wrote in the intertestamental periods, which is the time between the Old and New Testament. They continue to build on that idea and that thought and and they continue to write like, look, the Bible's clear. Anger is is not good. Anger's bad. 
it, it continues into the New Testament in the passage last week. We saw that Jesus says that anger is akin to murder of the heart. And, and that's really kind of straightforward and Big And I learned this week that a lot of people connect that passage to the story of Cain and Abel and where Cain kills his brother Abel and it's done out of anger. And so they're saying Jesus is writing in regards to the Cain and Abel story when he says and connects anger to murder. And then in our passage next week, uh, Paul is going to put sin, uh, the, the sin list out there for us and includes anger and he seems to set up two ideas living in light of your relationship with God and then he has a list of things that should happen and then living in light of your flesh against the Holy Spirit and he includes the word anger and so when we come to this passage that says in your anger do not sin it's like well we have to understand that in light of everything else the New Testament has said to us And thankfully, the language of the passage in Greek allows for us to read this in a different way than be angry all you want. In fact, in the King James Version of the Bible, it actually says be angry and do not sin like it's a command, just be angry at people. But but, uh, the language allows for us to read it differently. And the word biblical commentary, which is written by a guy much smarter than me, actually agrees with my understanding. It says, this, and this is going to be a long one. Um, it is important, however, to be clear about the force of this construction. It is not granting permission to be angry, although verse 26b recognizes that anger will occur. Verse 27 indicates how dangerous it is, and verse 31 repudiates all anger. The focus of verse 26a then is not, is not sinning by indulging in anger. It's paradoxical paradoxical formulation was not meant to encourage speculation about what types of anger might be permissible, whatever the merits of the traditional notion of righteous anger and injustice or the modern notion of the healthiness of expressing rather than suppressing anger. They should not be thought to have support in the concessive aspect of this prohibition. Its force may be conveyed by the paraphrase, anger is to be avoided at all costs, but if, for whatever reason, you do get angry, then refuse to indulge such anger that you do not sin. That was a mouthful. It's even hard reading it. But did you get the point of this guy? And he hinges a lot of this on things that I barely understood. Uh, that word concessive right there. Uh, it's a Greek formula of the verbiage that Paul uses. Uh, this is what I believed anyway. Let me just be fully honest. That this was not saying you should go get angry. Just make sure that you don't yell at somebody when you do. Uh, and so when I found somebody much smarter than me that agreed, it, it felt pretty good. But what I believe this passage is saying is look, Look, you're going to get angry. But when you do, don't allow it to cause you to do other things that are sinful. When you become angry, which you will because you are human, don't allow it to trigger other things that are sinful. If anger is always bad and maybe not sinful, We know that anger most of the time will lead to sinful things if we allow for it to. And so Paul shows up here and he says, hey, look, you're going to get angry. 
Just don't allow it to spill over into other things that are inherently sinful. And I want to point out that this doesn't just hang on a smarter man than me saying it or on uh, this Greek formulation, the concessive formulation of the terms there. It also hinges on verse 31 where Paul, and we'll read this in just a minute, is going to say flat out remove all anger. Remove it all. Now look, in Matthew 5, 22, which we read last week, in James 1, 19 and 20, which we talked about, you know, which I read to you already, and, and then Colossians 3, 8 next week, we've, we've looked at all of these, uh, but we see the danger of anger in all of them. And if you read the New Testament, you just look up the sins in the New Testament, there are a bunch that we can easily, just as people, connect to anger. I, I made a list for us. This may not be all of them, but here's 13. Bitterness, hatred, coarse language, gossip, mockery, slander, fighting, brawling, rioting, drunkenness, assault, murder, wrath. It took me about five seconds to connect all of those sins to anger. When we are angry, we do things that are inherently Sinful. And what Paul is saying, what Paul says in his, gospel, in his uh, letters is, look, don't be angry. But when that emotion comes, don't, be, don't let it be the excuse or the reason that you do all of these other things. I could envision us leaving last week and going, well, Jesus said not to be angry. But I got angry, so I might as well yell at them, <laughs> right? Like, well, I've already sinned now, and there's no getting rid of this anger, so I might as well, you know, just cuss them out or, or, or be in a fight or punch them in the face or assault them. Hopefully you didn't do that. Uh, you know, I mean, I might as well because I'm already angry. And, and Paul says, no, 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 when you get angry, don't sin. And then, in fact, he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. A famous passage of scripture, one that spills out into the non-Christian world. And this is one that Bryn and I have, have tried to take in a more literal sense. And we try to never go to bed while we are still angry. And we have had some late nights where we're like, well, if you don't change your thinking or you don't change your thinking, I'm still going to be angry. And so what are we going to do about this? Stay up? forever you know I mean never go to sleep because the Bible says and that's been a healthy practice in our marriage because I think we all can agree that anger seems to compound on anger right it's like a, a snowball almost and I think anger has this effect of a of a snowball it it starts little and then you just kind of let it roll for a while and over time you have this immovable thing in fact uh, in college I believe I was a sophomore in college. It's when we had like the big snow followed by the big ice. Do you guys remember that? Like really large amounts of snow followed by large amounts of ice. And, and I remember I, I was at home and it started snowing like crazy. It's one of the biggest snowstorms of my life. And my roommates weren't home yet. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting on the porch just looking at snow. Thinking it'd be so fun to have somebody to play in the snow with. And nobody was home. So I just started this little snowball and I just started pushing it and pushing it and and over time, it got bigger, and then my roommates got home, and we, we built this snowball so big uh, 
that we could no longer move it. And actually, we, by the time we were done, it was in the middle of the road that we lived on. And, and there was no moving it anymore. It was just done. And, and I think that anger acts like that, right? Like if in a marriage or a friendship, you just get angry a little bit and, and you go to sleep and, and you wake up and that anger is still there like a small snowball and, and the next day you get a little more angry then, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and after a while it's really, really difficult to get rid of that anger, to move it away, to put it aside, to even melt it. I think uh, up until a couple days ago we still had snow because people had piled it up. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you just take that at almost a face value, like just don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Like if anger is snow, then do your best to melt it every day so that if it snows again tomorrow, it's just a little snowball that you can deal with. But I think the literal sense is probably not what Paul should be taking as, as meaning in this case. I didn't think about this until I was studying this passage for this sermon, but I don't think what Paul is saying is when you get rid of your anger is dependent on the time of year it is. Because he says when the sun goes down, right? And that would mean in winter, I would need to be done with anger by like four o'clock. And in summer, I could be mad at whoever until about 10, right? And, and I don't think that's actually what Paul is getting at. I think what Paul is getting at is that we should do our best to melt the snow of anger as soon as we possibly can. When you become angry, get rid of anger as quickly as you can. That's kind of different, right, than how we normally think about this passage, or at least how I've normally thought about it. I can be angry at my wife until I get tired, and then we better deal with it, you know? Like, we better figure this out because I want to go to sleep now, and we get a half-hearted you know, apology here, and okay, I'm going to sleep because we did our job. That's, that's, that's less difficult. That's easier. But, but I don't think it's at the heart of Paul's words here. Paul recognizes, he's going to say in just a couple of verses, we're going to read it. I mean, get rid of all anger, but he realizes it's going to come. You're going to get mad at your friends. You're going to get mad at your parents. You're going to get mad at your children. You're going to get mad at your spouse. You're going to get mad at your coworkers. Get rid of it as soon as you can. Do not harbor it. Do not sit in it. Do not allow it to stay. And I especially think this is true because what Paul says next, do not give the devil a foothold. I just don't think Paul's saying like, don't give the devil a foothold until 9.30 in August. You know, I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. And this, this, by the way, is a crazy statement. I've heard this my whole life. I've heard it my whole life. Like, you know, get rid of the anger. You don't want to give the devil a foothold. Those, that type of language. Uh, but I didn't realize that the more literal translation, uh, a translation that you see in the King James Version actually is place. Do not give the devil a place. That's so much like more clear to me than a foothold. A foothold, I picture Satan on the side of a mountain struggling to climb and, and, and like I don't want to give him that little thing, you know, and he probably isn't going to be able to stand on it anyway because he's about to fall off the cliff and no big deal. But when I hear place, it's like, wow, that's different language. In fact, the ESV and NASB translations of the Bible, uh, they translate it as opportunity. And either way, the magnitude, I think, comes out further. 
When you are angry, you are opening up a place for Satan to work in you. Well, that's a much bigger deal, right? I mean, that is a much bigger deal. When you let anger stay, you create a space for Satan to work. I wrote it this way just because it kind of came into my head. If idle hands are the devil's workshop, an angry heart is the devil's bedroom. If idle hands are the devil's workshop, an angry heart is the devil's bedroom. And I don't think any of us want to give Satan a bedroom in the home of our souls. And so now I think just it's more clear, right? It's like, I can't be angry because if I am, I give place to Satan. And so when I get angry, when I get angry, I need to avoid sin, but I also need to do my best to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And we've seen how this can happen, right? We've seen how Satan works through anger, even anger that seems righteous at the time, even anger that seems good. If it stays around long enough, then people do things that are wretched and terrible. We can just think of the the grandest illustration of that at least that I can think of and that's people shooting doctors of abort- at abortion clinics it's like they were angry about something that is so easy to get angry about the, the slaughtering of 810,000 lives every year in our country but they let the anger stay and it gave place to Satan doing something we need to We need to heed these words. Avoid anger at all costs. But when anger comes, don't allow it to parlay into other sins and do your best to get rid of it as quickly as possible so you don't give Satan a place. I'm gonna skip down a couple of verses because Paul kind of just shifts gears for a couple of verses and it wouldn't be applicable to this sermon, but they're great verses. But in 29 and 30, he says, do not let let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I included verse 29 just because it seems, excuse me, on point. I mean, when we are angry, it's so easy to let unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. And it's so easy to say things that are not helpful for the building up of others. In fact, as we saw last week, we say things that are for the tearing down of others because at its core, that's what anger is, a desire to see God's work in the life of another person torn down. Uh, These things are focused on communication, and again, do not sin in your anger. But this other part is more to the point in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed. Ephesians 1 makes clear that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit enters into our lives. And when he enters into our lives, we are sealed for an eternity in heaven by God. It's magnificent magnificent language. If you're ever feeling down or or feeling like God doesn't care about you, go read Ephesians 1. It's a great pick-me-up. Like God loves us and he seals us and he's blessed us with all these incredible spiritual gifts in Christ. 
And in Ephesians 4, oh man, Ephesians 4, I've listened to it a bunch this week just because it's, it's so big and so profound and, and it moves to our verses that we're looking at today, but it's like so big about how Jesus has saved us and how we've become a new creation in Christ. And now Paul adds to that, the Holy Spirit has indwelled us. And so Paul is saying here, the next thing, in light of the fact that we have been saved by the grace and love of Jesus, and in that we have become a brand new creation, we have been born again, we are something holy and entirely different than we used to be. And the Holy Spirit is inside of us and we ought not grieve him. And then he says this, verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, we agree, rage, we agree, and anger. Brawling, we agree, and slander, we agree, along with every form of malice, we agree. And it's weird to me that we would be so quick to ignore this this word anger. Have we not been so quick to ignore that in Christian circles? We sometimes wear anger as a badge of faithfulness to God. Look how angry I am about all those stupid non-Christian people that don't agree with us, and I'm fired up and furious and like look at me but we would never say I should be so bitter for Jesus I should have so much rage I should brawl I should slander people sometimes we accept that pretty easily or malice I mean this is a list of bad things and in the middle of it, Paul includes anger. And it's just, this is like, this is the verse that it's just like, man, it just seems bad all the time. I don't know what to do with verse 31 because get rid of all is difficult for me to get around. Although as a human, I would like to get around it sometimes. Paul's saying it's so clear and it's gonna be clear in the Colossians passage we'll look at next week. Remove all anger. It isn't in line with the movement of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that so clearly next week. I hope you'll, you'll come back again next week and, and, and you'll look at that passage because it's gonna be another step in removing it. And now, and now we turn our, our attention to how we get rid of anger. And we're like, two and a half weeks in here on sermons and it's just bad, right? Which doesn't always help. But, but now Paul, I think he gives us like the first antidote, the first two antidotes in how to remove anger. He says in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. We saw that the Bible likens anger to poison. And if anger is poison, then we see these antidotes right here in verse 32 of Ephesians 4. And the first one is to be kind. The word means compassionate. And even more kind of to the point, it means to be useful or profitable or good or gentle to one another. In Luke 6, 35, it says, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That word kind right there about our God is the same word that he says is an antidote to our anger. God is even kind, he's even good, he's even useful, he's even profitable to those who reject him and who are wicked. I think that we should follow suit, but this, oh, actually, just as a 
as a point of illustration here, I, I saw this little Facebook video that was meant to tug on your heartstrings this week, and uh, the video was uh, it was just words coming onto a screen with pictures behind it, and the story that it told was one of a of a uh, man who was struggling with his wife, and they fought all the time. And he had this epiphany, maybe something is, uh, maybe the, well, the only thing I can change is me and how I act. And so he made this decision. He would say every day to his wife, what can I do to make your day better? And so he said it the first day and his wife was angry with him. What's your point? What is, why, are you, why are you asking me that? What agenda do you have? And he's like, I'm just asking. What can I do to make your day better? And, and she said, Clean the kitchen. He cleaned the kitchen. And the next day, he said, what can I do to make your day better? She said, clean the garage. I think she was like thinking of the two worst things in the world, <laughs> you know? And, and so he cleaned the garage. And he just kept doing this over and over and over again. And the story that it tells is that it fixes and heals their marriage. Until one day, she looks at him and says, what can I do to make your day better? And I believe, I really do. That if we want to remove anger, then one of the things we can do is just flip our minds to not ask the question, you know, what are they doing wrong and what's the problem with them, but to say, what can I do that is profitable or good or helpful for them? But I concede that part of that is simply removing the the symptoms of anger, right? And, and not the anger itself. And so this second word, I think, is, is of equal value to us. Be compassionate to one another. This is a rare word in the New Testament, but it means tender-hearted. I love that. I think that one of the greatest things we can do to be less angry with whoever makes us angry so often is to change our hearts from one of stone and toughness to one that is tender towards that person. In Ephesians 4, 18, it says about non-Christians, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. If you're a Christian, you act like somebody who's not a Christian when you harden your heart towards another person. And isn't that what happens as the snowball of anger builds over time? We just go into conversations expecting that they're going to make us mad and harden to them and we're looking for a reason to be angry. And Paul says, hey, soften your heart towards the other person. Be tenderhearted towards them. And, and, then, and then it's like this. And then, and then he gives us the how. Because he says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's how we soften our hearts to another person. Not by saying, get softer, get softer, get softer. But by turning our attention to the gospel story. The story of Jesus. The story in which Jesus looked down on earth and every single person was adamantly rejecting him. We, all of us, we all had turned away from the God who had created us and loved us and infused us with his very nature. And we did things, and we know this because we still do these things, and we see these things. We did things that were wretched and evil and contrary to his very nature. And he didn't look down and go, I want to 
get them. He looked down and said, what can I do for them? And he came from heaven to earth and he lived on this earth for 30 plus years and then he died on a cross. The most brutal death that's ever been died, not because it was painfully more excruciating than other deaths, although it was, but because it was spiritually hell. And then he rose again. And we, when we look at that story and we think on that story and we reflect on that story, must see in that story that we have no right to look at other people and say, every time you do something stupid, I'm going to be angry because I'm so much better than you. I think that what Paul gets at here is that we can be kind and compassionate to one another. We can be profitable and tenderhearted towards one another, not by turning our attention to the person and saying, well, I'll just do better. Not even by looking inward and saying, I'll do better. But by remembering, not just mentally, but deep in our souls, remembering that we did everything we could do to make the God of the universe angry. And instead of being angry, he demonstrated his love for us by dying on a cross. Jesus tells this parable about a person who owes a king a lot of money and the king forgives him. It's like an infinite amount of money in our terms today. It's like trillions of dollars. He owes him trillions of dollars. There's no way he can pay and the king forgives him and then that same man who owed the king money is set free and he goes out and he's living his life and a guy owes him like a hundred bucks and he says, no, 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 you need to go to jail because you owe me a hundred bucks. And the king is like, how could you be so wicked? And in that story, I mean, it, it's like it would make us mad, right? Like, how could you be so unforgiving? How could you be so cold, hard-hearted in light of the grace that has been given to you? And yet we are that person so often because we look at the grace of God and go, you've given me so much but I'm going to be furious at them when they don't give me what I want. The first antidote to removing anger is to say, Jesus, I get how much you have given me, how many times I've messed up and you've forgiven me, and I want to be like you. Our hearts are tenderized by the tender love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. And that's exactly what Paul says in, in chapter five, verse one. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A key step of us removing anger is considering all of our interactions in light of the gospel. Every time you feel anger welling up inside of you because they did or they didn't or they're jerks or they're idiots or I can't believe they would, every time that starts to well up, you should go, well, I did and I was and I'm a jerk and I rejected God and I hurt God and he forgave me. So I'll forgive you. Not at 10 o'clock tonight, but right now because I didn't deserve the grace that God give, gave me, 
And they might not deserve the grace that, that you are going to give them, but you give it anyway because your heart has been softened by the incredible story of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, I just, I just pause right there and say you should become one. It's going to be really hard to get rid of that anger that you feel, that you have held on to, that you have, that you have rolled into a giant snowball that you cannot remove from your life without the, the warming, tenderizing grace and love of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you already know that grace. And so allow for it to be the thing that tenderizes your heart and takes away your anger. Let me pray for you, Lord. I just ask that you would help us not to be so arrogant, God, to think that when somebody sins against us, our right response would be anger. When you, God, have endured so much from us. Lord, I want to pray for people here, for people who are listening or will listen online, God, that don't know you as their savior, that are not Christians, I pray, God, that you would bring them into a relationship with you. And you know, God, that I have like a million reasons that I'm glad I'm a Christian and that I want other people to be Christians. But one, God, is that it's the only thing that gives me a chance to overcome the anger that I so easily feel. And God, I pray for all the Christians, all of us who are Christians, and I ask Jesus that you would soften our heart by your gospel. And when we get angry, God, I pray that we wouldn't just go, stop being angry, stop being angry, stop being angry. Uh, but we would turn our eyes into your incredible grace and it would tenderize our hearts once again, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.